Welcome, everybody, to the Finding Hermes podcast. As always, I hope you're ready to go through the doorways with the God of the mind to find the healing and the answers to your life as we live in this age of Hermes. I hope you're ready to put your cards down on the table and, as Joseph Campbell said, become transparent to the transcendent. With us today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Greg Hammer. Greg, how are you? I'm well, Miguel. Good to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, and really enjoyed your book and a lot of your insights. So we will definitely be unpacking that. His book is Gain Without Pain. And with us too, Hermes told me that it would be a good idea to have the moon dog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Um, notwithstanding the visitors that disappeared behind me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, well, maybe it'll make the New York Times or CNN. Extraterrestrials have visited Vance. So now it's commonplace. So you might not even make the news. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to hearing what Dr. Hammers has to say, though. Yeah. Well, Greg, why don't we start with a little bit about yourself? I got asked to uh, give a talk at a national hospital administrators conference on wellness and burnout and and then another talk and another and and then I had some sabbatical time so I decided to write the book to get the message out even to a greater degree at the same time uh I've been a student for a long time of advaita or non-duality so I think all of these threads are interwoven and come together to form the uh the, the the backbone, if you will, not to mix metaphors, but that's that's who I am. Yeah, in your book, you do quote uh, Robert Spear. God, when he talks or when I read his stuff, I swear I go into a non-dual experience just from his words. So it's a, it's wonderful stuff. And I guess the question would be, do you see your book just focusing on physicians or can anybody gain from it? Well, that's an interesting well, choice. You can gain from it. No, in fact, I'm doing a lot of these podcasts, television and radio gigs, and they're really infrequently having anything to do with the healthcare profession. Um, I might have just uh, dropped the subtitle, I suppose, and uh, maybe uh, called it Your Happiness Handbook instead of uh, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. But it's really, you know, for everyone, we're all the same, we're all made of consciousness. We all have the same uh, the same hardwiring of our brains that appears to veil our ability to be happy. And uh, fortunately, we all have brains that have this wonderful quality called neuroplasticity. And so if we have intention, we can rewire our brains toward a more happier, uh, happy way of being. And that's really what the book is all about. Yeah, like I said, I got a lot of, out of it. And even then, it is pretty startling what people don't know. And let me share a little from my background. Around 2016, I worked for a market research company. I was the marketing director. And some of our, you might say, panels were physicians, uh, dentists, and veterinarians. And I would do the the studies for these groups. And there were lots of studies. And I remember my jaw falling to the floor going, oh, my God, the the depression, alcoholism and other negative uh, mental disorders in that field. It is insanely high. I couldn't believe it. And 
I was sad because I would want to go on this crusade and write blogs and whatever, get help and all that because I'm in the program. But of course, they kind of, you know, my bosses would say, no, no, we want to know, you know, we need them for this or that. So and you yourself in your book, you write, uh, where is it I've got here? Each year, 400 U.S. physicians commit suicide, the highest rate of any profession. Up to 30 percent of new nursing graduates leave the profession within a year. So it's a. Uh, it's really something somebody should be sounding the alarm bell, right? And that's what you've been trying to do and say, look, we got to deal with this. Absolutely. Well, you know, the book, as I said, was written in part in response to burnout amongst physicians and other healthcare professionals. And burnout is simply the mental and physical fatigue that we experience from chronic stress. And I think you might agree that the last five years or so have probably been the most stressful for everybody um, yeah. for so many reasons, but, um, you know, certainly COVID uh, was a very difficult experience for almost everyone. Of course, we, we lost loved ones. We were isolated from one another. And for that reason, we tend to become more uh, of a mind that we're this little separate self uh, rather than all made of consciousness and really all connected, not more than connected. We really are all the same stuff. But when we are isolated in our little uh, proverbial cubicles, we tend to forget that and become more and more, uh, have a greater sense of being a separate self. And that leads to suffering. That's a, you know, a Buddhist concept that is also really central to non-duality. We're, you know, the sense of separation and being a separate self leads to suffering. And that was certainly underscored in COVID. Um, and then we have a lot of other very stressful things. And so, you know, healthcare profession is certainly high stress, given what's on the line. You know, if we make a mistake, somebody might die, particularly in my areas of cardiac anesthesia and intensive care. So it's, it's, it's not difficult to understand how stressed out people in healthcare are, not only doctors, but nurses, respiratory therapists, others. Um, but I really think that it's a global problem. And so certainly suicide rates are up. Those data that you quoted are pre-COVID data. Um, and so wow. I, I would not be at all surprised if, if things are even a bit worse now in terms of suicide and, and the degree of chronic stress and the maladies, both physical and spiritual, that befall many of us these days. Oh, indeed. That's why I started this podcast, because uh, as I keep saying, uh, statistically speaking, things are better than ever, regardless of what the news tell you. There's actually less wars, less poverty. Uh, the, the environment has less of a chance of destroying us. Natural disasters are more manageable. Physically and monetarily, these are the best times. However, suicide, depression, uh, alcoholism drugs are just shooting up across like globally across there's something wrong with our minds and i started this podcast because hermes is he's the god of the mind but he's also the god of tricks he's the god of uh, innovation but he's also the god of commerce and uh stealing and all that so we have to understand this duality that is within our mind and i think uh work like yours is important do you see the medical 
industry as a whole shifting perhaps to your way of thinking? Or there's a book that I really love, which is The Myth of Normal by Dr. Gabor Mate. And he over and over again, he shows that stress is what's killing us. Negative thoughts is what gets what's giving us cancer, depression, all that. And it the mind is really, really more powerful than we could ever think. Do you see the, a shift or are you still... You and Dr. Gabor Mate are still uh, the minority. Well, Gabor is a wonderful guy. I love his work. I, uh, you know, he and I uh, have had lunch together and become friends, and and I admire him a lot. Um, I think that things are changing very slowly in the sense that this phenomenon called burnout is has become such a big problem that it is on the radar of hospital administrators, department chairs, deans of medical schools, and so on. And so, you know, things are are beginning to shift, but, you know, it's a big ship and it's very difficult to turn it around. So it's a very slow process in redirecting things. Um, you know, we do have more emphasis on self-care and um, equity, uh, opening up to one another, uh, it's no longer, as we've seen in politics and elsewhere, taboo to have mental illness, to have depression. So these things are more out in the open. And therefore, you know, you have to first identify the problem before you can begin to treat it. So I do think there's more light shed on uh, the the stress that we all experience. And, and we can now begin to open up a little bit to ourselves and to others about what we're experiencing. And so that's a very positive development. But again, I think it's, uh, we've got a long way to go. And I think the ship is just turning very, very slowly. Indeed. Yeah. I don't think people understand the, the power of the mind. So burnout, how would you describe burnout and what are some signs that you are burned out? Because I'm sure all three of us here, we we get so worked up with our with our jobs, with our family. You don't even know sometimes that you're stressed or that you're falling apart until your wife or somebody taps you on the shoulder and like you're not making sense or you know your body looks like shit or something. And you're like, oh man, I better take a break. Uh, tell us about uh, identifying and understanding burnout. Well, as I said, burnout is the fatigue, mental fatigue emotional fatigue, but physical fatigue as well that we experience related to chronic stress. So the key is to enhance our personal resist, uh, resilience rather, and that's what the book is all about. But the effects of chronic stress are myriad. So let's talk about the effects of stress on our physical bodies. So in the book, uh, that first book, there's a chapter each on sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And I really think those are the three legs of the tripod that support our physical well-being. And if our physical well-being is diminished, then so is our mental and spiritual well-being because our bodies become a distraction. They become out of whack. We begin to experience pain, fatigue, and then it becomes difficult to, to follow our spiritual practice, if you will. And so sleep, for example, when we're stressed, our sleep is diminished, both in quality and quantity. And then we become fatigued. And when we're fatigued, we tend to miss our exercise. We're too tired to get up and exercise. And also we tend to eat less 
healthy. So we tend to pick up sugary and fatty so-called comfort foods, which give us a temporary boost. And you could see how these three elements are so interrelated. And then this becomes a self-propagating or what we call a positive feedback loop. Our sleep is degraded from stress. Our exercise regimen goes out the window. Our diets deteriorate. And this impairs our sleep. We know that when we're, when we're exercising, when we're eating well, our sleep is better. And so all these three things are degraded and they, and they tend to propel one another. And then we become kind of sloppy in our, in our physical health and you know overweight, sluggish, underslept. And this just perpetuates the cycle of chronic stress and, and, and our physical selves being out of whack. So that's you know, one way we can easily identify how chronic stress has adverse effects on our bodies. And then the effects on our mental and spiritual health really follow. Yeah, good advice. Good advice. I mean, well, tell us about your uh, gain, uh, your gain idea or gain project or solution. Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say that on the sleep exercise and nutrition front, um, and we'll talk about the the gain elements as a, I think really the the fundamentals of mental and spiritual wellness. But again, the good news is that we have this wonderful quality called neuroplasticity. That means we can change the way we think. Now our brains evolve the way they are to be the way they are, hardwired the way they are over tens of thousands of years. So we're not going to rewire them or really dramatically change the way we think overnight. We have to be quite content with baby steps have low expectations, but just be on the right path. Because in fact, you know, life is a path. It's a journey. There's no real destination. But we're going to make slow progress on a daily basis if we have intention, which is the I in gain. So with regard to our physical well-being, our sleep. sleep. So if we have a plan, we can yeah. improve our sleep hygiene. Does that mean? Does that, mean? that means a handful of things really that I think we all know, but we, we tend to push away. Going to bed and waking up at the same time, approximately every day, even on the weekend, that sort of programs us for sleep when it's bedtime. And, and then we you know, wake up at the same time and our, our, our depth and quality of sleep tend to be enhanced. Um, caffeine. Caffeine has a very long half-life of five or six hours. So that means that that cup of coffee that we have at one o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock in the afternoon after lunch is equivalent to having half a cup of coffee five or six hours later. So that's basically with dinner. That's what a half-life is. So the, the blood concentration of caffeine at that one cup of coffee in the afternoon is equivalent to half the concentration result from a half a cup in the evening. That's going to keep many of us awake because it's equivalent to a quarter of the amount of caffeine in our bloodstream, uh, having a quarter of a cup of coffee at bedtime. And that would certainly keep me up. So uh, I stopped drinking coffee after nine o'clock in the morning, essentially. Uh, alcohol, not quite as long uh, in terms of duration of effect on our sleep, but alcohol and other uh, substances that tend to promote unconsciousness, that is, we think we're falling asleep, but the quality of our sleep is degraded. We don't get the full restorative benefit of sleep when we have alcohol in our bloodstream. So I think it's wise not to drink alcohol proximate to bedtime. 
Uh, we all know about the blue light and other elements of being on our screens. So I like to say that our, our, our bed is meant for two things and neither of them are screen time. So sitting on our bed at night with our laptop and our phones and our tablets um, and even television, you know, proximate to the time we go to bed is not really a good idea. So, I mean, these are basic sleep hygiene elements. Exercise, uh, we, we know what to do. Um, you know, during COVID, perhaps the gym was closed or what have you. Our cycling group was, was not getting together. Um, our walking group wasn't getting together. Maybe it, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, maybe there is none. But the idea is just to get up and even just go walk around the block and then maybe go for gradually more vigorous walks. And of course, um, you know, jogging, cycling, those other things are always available as well. So exercise is key. And then the way we eat our nutrition, we, again, I think we know what to do. Maybe move toward a more plant-based diet. Um, I've been a, a vegetarian for 50 years, but that doesn't mean that occasional red meat is bad. Um, in fact, it's rich in iron, which many people may need. So, um, but I think we should eat less meat, if any, and move toward more colorful fruits and vegetables, uh, et cetera. So we know what to do, obviously avoiding sugar and things that are essentially sugar, like corn syrup, fructose, et cetera. So look at the labels, avoid highly processed foods to the extent feasible. So first we need to focus on our sleep, exercise, and nutrition, and then we can really focus on our spiritual wellness. And that's where these four gain elements come into play. I think they are really the, the pillars, the four pillars that support our mental and spiritual well-being. And, and GAIN is an acronym, as you know, Miguel, for gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. So we can, we can drill down on those uh, individually and collectively, if you'd like. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, again, rewiring re your brain is uh, so important. And one of the things that I've done through many things, including meditation, has really just been so essential as part of my life. And mainly because one thing we do in our lives is we make excuses. I don't have time for the gin. Oh, I don't have time to go to the ashram and worship. I don't have, you know, meditation, there are no excuses. You can sit there for 10 minutes on your lunch break or when you're driving, you can put on some, well, no, you might crash. But you know what I mean? You can always find time for meditation and it, the, the benefits are just incredible. Well, we can talk about the gain meditation. So yeah. many people think that meditation means you have to sit still, possibly in an uncomfortable position for 30 minutes and, and banish all thoughts from your brain. And that's why a lot of people either don't try it or they've tried it and they believe that they've failed. So the gain practice is really just as little as three minutes. Um, and it's best to do it in the morning. So we get up, we open the blinds, we do our morning hygiene, and then we find a comfortable place to sit. Um, we sit, we get comfortable, we close our eyes, we focus on the breath at first. So we slow down the inhalation, perhaps to a count of three, we pause to a count of three, and then we slowly exhale to a count of four. So by slowing the breath down, we actually activate a part of our nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is the, the side of the nervous system that keeps the sympathetic or fight or flight side of the nervous system in check. So when we 
breathe deeply and slowly, we activate our parasympathetic nervous system. We have less adrenaline and cortisol in our body. So our heart rate goes down, our blood pressure goes down, uh, our blood sugar goes down. Um, and we, we get a lot of benefit just from that. We also, by doing this deep belly breathing, slow breathing, we open up the little tiny air sacs in our lungs that tend to get collapsed when we fail to breathe deeply, when we were holding a lot of tension in our body, in our chest, in our abdomen, you know, we can go all day without taking deep breaths when we're stressed. Um, and so slow, deep breathing tends to open these tiny little microscopic air sacs called alveoli, and that increases the amount of oxygen that gets into our bloodstream. So there's so many benefits of just breathing deeply and slowly. And I find that when we count to three on the inspiration, three to for pausing and then a count of four slowly without effort, letting the breath go in through the nose, out through the nose or mouth. Uh, so we do this a few times and then we go to the G and gain, which is gratitude. So we begin to acknowledge silently that for which we're grateful. And, uh, you know, I would posit that we all have much for which to be grateful. My gain morning meditation starts with gratitude for this day because I'm alive today and I, you know, I, it beats the alternative. Um, I am grateful for my health and wealth. And those are relative terms. So, you know, we, our brains are wired to be rather negative. We can talk about that later. We have a negativity bias. So a lot of times we, you know, get out of bed, we have an ache or a pain and we focus on that. So we focus on the fact that, oh, my back is stiff. And we ignore the fact that the rest of our body is working perfectly and what a miracle that is. So we can be grateful for our relative health, even if we have some aches and pains, even if we have some other medical disorder, we have so much to be grateful for in terms of our, the way our bodies work. Um, grateful for our loved ones, our friends, our community. Uh, in my case, my work, which is a privilege and allows me to serve others. So we all have much for which to be grateful. So we can easily spend 30 or 45 seconds um, going through and contemplating that for which we're grateful. And then we transition to the A in gain, which is acceptance. Because we need to acknowledge that pain is as intrinsically part of life as joy. So acceptance of that which is painful or uncomfortable, I think it's important. We can't just pretend that everything is a bed of roses or a bowl of cherries in our lives. So we, we will become more and more capable of identifying something painful over time as we learn how to accept the art of allowing. So we identify something that's uncomfortable. It could be uh, an interaction we had with a friend that didn't go well. It could be loss of a loved one. And we actually take that painful experience and we bring it closer and closer. We envision opening our chest opening our heart and bringing that uncomfortable, painful experience into our heart and nurturing it, actually supporting it, enveloping it with our heart and allowing. And we also link this to our breath. So again, we, we kind of go back to the breath also throughout this gain process. And by slowly, deeply breathing, we relax our muscles. This, this helps us accept, it hel helps us allow um, you know, the world does not comport with our wants and needs. So we, we need to learn how to accept and just allow what is to be. And then we go to the I in gain, which is intention. And, and 
you know, we're so often overthinking the future. We need to be purposeful if we want to experience the present moment. And that's where happiness lives. So we spend 30 or 45 seconds on our purpose, our intention of being present. So we may start with 15 seconds of acknowledging our bodily sensations, you know, the pressure of the chair against our body, the tingling on our soles of our feet, uh, the slightly sweet smell of the air that we're breathing, perhaps a sound of a distant airplane going by, uh, a bird chirping outside. And so we focus on the present experience, even just our physical experience. And then we remind ourselves that our intention, our purpose is to be more positive because again, we have this negativity bias. So we just focus for 15 or 20 seconds on, again, these, these elements are linked. We can focus on that for which we're grateful. That's our intention is to be more grateful. And then we go to the N in gain, which is non-judgment. And you know, our minds are constantly evaluating everything in our environment and we tend to judge things. And again, because we're hardwired with this negativity bias, we tend to judge things in a negative way and most harshly ourselves. We're our own harshest critics. There are a lot of good data, you know, scientific studies to uh, confirm that we are very hard on ourselves. A, a nice cognitive behavioral exercise is Next time we're really self-critical, imagine that we're talking to a good friend and the good friend is experience, experiencing what we're experiencing. And would we be critical of them? Would we be judging them negatively? No, we would be supporting them. So pretend we're talking to our best friend and, and drop the self-judgment. But we might spend 30 or 45 seconds picturing one of these beautiful images of the earth, apparently and it's evident to us that the earth is just a planet. The earth is neither good nor bad. Things don't have to be good or bad, they just are. And this beautiful suspended image of the earth, it's just a planet, it's not good or bad, it just is the planet that it is. And so it's only logical for me to think, I am just the person that I am. I am neither good nor bad. I am simply the person that I am. And then we can just repeat, I am and go back to the breath, link this I amness with our slow, deep, intentional breath, and then just go purely back to the breath. Slowly in, pausing, slow exhalation, and then we slowly open our eyes and we're ready to go out in the world. And what happens is when we do this three to five minute practice every morning, when we find that we're being ungrateful or judgmental, a little light bulb will go off and we'll recognize what we're doing and we can smile and sort of drop the judgment or remember the gratitude. And we get a little hit of dopamine. And so instead of that negative experience judging that other driver who moved into our lane without using their turn signal, we actually get a little dopamine hit because we recognize, well, we might've done that as well. Let's not judge that person. Um, you know, we're all imperfect. And, and so it's a really magical process that we can recognize after days and weeks that we are in fact rewiring our brains for the better. Well, that's really nice. And thank you. Yeah. I'm definitely going to try probably gain this weekend. I have my own rituals these days. Tonglen meditation really helps. Uh, and as I always tell people, yeah, meditate. And the, 
And I always also tell people, don't have expectations. Don't expect to see Buddha on the ninth heaven or a mystical experience or let your, your body and your unconscious, if you, you, if you are speaking to them and taking care of them, they're going to tell you where to go and you'll be fine. But no expectations. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, I agree with you so wholeheartedly. There's no such thing as failure. Okay, every baby step you take in the right direction is a positive development. So, you know, today you might have a really solid, beautiful meditation. Tomorrow you might be distracted and, and not be able to sit quietly for more than a minute or two. That's okay. Again, go back to the gain elements. Be grateful that you're able to sit at all. Be grateful that you're able to breathe at all. And drop the judgment, drop the self-judgment. If, if I was too distracted to sit quietly for five minutes today, so be it. You know, again, no expectations, as you said, Miguel, and, and let's drop the self-judgment because really there's no benefit to, to judgment in general. When we judge things as good or bad, we're actually exercising our bias. We're, we're superimposing this hue of our own thoughts and, and, experiences and we're failing to see the thing for what it is exactly as it is it doesn't have to be good or bad and that applies to ourselves as well yeah well said i mean like you there are times i meditate and i could feel this beautiful healing flow of energy there's times i meditate and some past memory will come back and just torment me for 20 minutes but like you said i see it as a win I'm, this is supposed to happen and everything it will again my subconscious and my body will take care and reward me for my ego might not like it but that's fine that's fine and uh vance what about you do you even drink coffee vance i don't even no, know I, oh, no, I, 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 no i dropped caffeine uh, quite a while ago um, i was drinking sodas and dr peppers and so forth about 10 years ago but gradually i dropped the sodas dropped the coffee so oh, good, no good for you. What do you, <laughs> what do you have questions? I know sometimes, I mean, I've always admired you because I know sometimes you tell me you're working nine, 10 hours straight and I'll call you or message you. And you're always very calm. Even if you're telling me the world is, you know, things are going <laughs> wrong over what you do, but you always seem to, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll get it later. Yeah, How I do take, you manage take questions for, uh, for Greg? Well, well, yeah, I, I had an important one uh, earlier. You mentioned uh, about people getting trapped in their individual selves and not realizing that they were one with consciousness. Um, do you have any um, any uh, methods or techniques to help people try to transition between that isolated individual self and the cosmic consciousness, so to speak? Well, that's a great question, Vance. There's so many different approaches to that um you know i'm i'm here in my home in carmel and my second home for which i'm very grateful to have i realize how blessed i am i've got my little dog joey with me um joey's a rescue i've had him only for a few months but you know i he loves to be in my lap and when i've got my arm around him i feel his little heart beating the warmth of his little body and i feel so connected to him and this is just a baby step in the direction of the connectedness that we all share, not just with other humans, but with everything else, particularly all living things. And so, you know, 
allow yourself to be connected to an animal, a dog, for example, even a cat. Um, so I think that's one thing. Reach out to other people, you know, recognize how important it is to have relationships, to be in community. And so when we're feeling isolated, take a break, reach out to a brother, a sister, a loved one, um, you know, pick up the phone and give them a call or walk across the street and engage in a conversation with a neighbor when you're both putting your recycling out. Um, you know, don't underestimate the power of that connection because when we connect to others, we're in recognition of consciousness, in fact, you know, that, that feeling of separation begins to fade. And what we need to do is acknowledge that awareness with each of these interactions and, and move in that direction in our lives. So, you know, I think that doing the gain meditation, it, it allows me to let go of this feeling of separation and isolation, right? Because even just starting with the breath, um, subconsciously, I, I know that we're all breathing. You know, we're all the same. We're all taking the breath in. We're all pausing. We're all letting the breath out. Um, all living things. So just, you know, focusing on your breath, I think, is a way of feeling connectedness. And then gratitude, being grateful. You know, do your gain meditation and include the gratitude for the loved ones in your life the connections you have with other people, with your community and, and focus on that, allow that to kind of unfold. Um, acceptance, accept that we have these feelings of isolation, accept the fact that all of our brains are hardwired to have a negativity bias. There's a lot of good science on this. We all focus on the negative and tend to forget the positive. Uh, I read that uh, in a, in a psychology journal that, 20% of our thoughts are positive and 80% of our thoughts are negative. And that resonates with me. I believe that to be true. So when we do our gain meditation, accept the fact that we have this negativity bias. Allow that because we all have it. It's not something that's our dirty little secret that we want to kind of hide away. We're all the same. And so this allowing, this acceptance really helps dissolve that sense of separation. Go to the I and gain, the intention. You know, part of our intention is to be more positive and more present. And so just being aware of our present sensations, our perceptions uh, is a step in the right direction. And when we allow ourselves to be more present, we feel connected because these feelings of isolation and separateness are really based in overthinking the past and the future and generating a lot of negativity and shame and regret and low self-esteem as we overthink the past with our negativity bias and fear and anxiety as we overthink the future, again, with the overlay of our negativity bias. We catastrophize. We think of the worst thing that might happen. And although that might be adaptive for me and my work to think of the worst thing that might happen to this patient so I can prevent it, it's not adaptive for most of us most of the time to always be thinking of the worst thing that may happen. So allow the intention of being present. Bring your focus back to the present moment. And then non-judgment, the end and gain, drop the judgment. Because when we judge others and notably ourselves, again, here's the negativity bias and that constant judgment, that isolates us. When we judge ourselves negatively, we feel shame, we feel low self-esteem, 
this tends to emphasize our separation from others. Because after all, I mean, if we're judging ourselves negatively, we're, we're isolating ourselves, right? If there is no negativity, if there is no good or bad, then there's no, you know, we're not uniquely negative in some way. We're all the same. And so, you know, I think just doing the gain practice, focusing on the breath and these four gain elements, returning to the breath, that practice alone, I think, brings us more into the present and helps us sort of dissolve this sensation that we tend to have most of the time that we're separate beings. So I think there's a lot of ways, uh, you know, again, I think everything comes down to these four elements in one way or another. They're universal, certainly not of my derivation. I mean, these are elements that are found in all religious and philosophic traditions. And I think they represent the path toward mental and spiritual wellness and the disappearance of this sensation of being a separate self. I suppose, um, you know, that also applies to, you know, people's fear of death. You were talking about COVID before, right? The whole world was, you know, afraid of, because of a statistical elevation of death rates, right, for this particular virus. They were afraid of death. I know I was. I still am, really. I'm still isolating, believe it or not. Um, due to certain circumstances of my health profile. <laughs> but uh, what would you say about that? I mean, does that play into thoughts of, you know, con being conscious, you know, one one with the consciousness and, and also the afterlife, what the afterlife might be, or fear of the void, fear of being nothing? Oh, fear absolutely. Yes. Very I much. mean, that, 100%. I mean, if you think about it, it's this sense of, separation the sense of being a separate self a separate body a separate ego that apparently appears i.e is born then lives a life and then disappears or dies that whole notion is based on the sense of being a separate self in other words what is it that apparently appears lives and then disappears if there is only consciousness, then there is nothing to appear or disappear. So we can get into what we think of as reincarnation or the afterlife and so on. Um, you know, that I'm sure could be a whole hour or perhaps longer. But I think this whole idea of birth and death is based on the separate self. So I think there's, you, you could, you can imagine or not just imagine, but, um, realize there are two ways of looking at the world. One is what might be called the materialist model. And the materialist model is based on the, the, our explanation of what we observe being based on breaking things down into their component parts. So everything can be explained by science, by deconstructing things into smaller and smaller and smaller parts, um, and then explaining all phenomena, including consciousness, by virtue of these component parts. So, you know, the search for the ultimate particle. You know, I went to a wonderful lecture at Stanford uh, probably five or six years ago when the, the uh, Higgs boson was discovered. Um, in this linear accelerator in Europe. I don't know if you read about that or if you remember it, but, you know, how many times in our history, especially, you know, in the 
beginning in the second half of the 20th century forward, have we celebrated the discovery of some new subatomic particle as being like the ultimate particle. So this is, although I think science is great, and you know, as a physician dealing with a very highly technical, a couple of subspecialties, I, you know, I, I love the materialist model to the extent that it helps us with scientific discovery. But I also think we're deluding ourselves if we think there is an ultimate subatomic particle that explains everything, or that consciousness comes from a reconstruction of all of these subatomic particles. In other words, we can, we can reconstruct things based on the materialist view and, and explain the mind and understand that consciousness comes from the mind. That's the materialist model. The alternative view is called the consciousness only model. And that is that there's only consciousness and the mind and everything else is really just a temporary modulation of consciousness. So I think this is a, a really important distinction. It's to look at consciousness as arising from the mind and the mind being composed of neurons and smaller and smaller you know, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles that explain the way neurons work, that explain the way the mind's, mind works, that explain how consciousness comes from the mind. That's, that's a worldview, and I, I don't see the world that way. I see the world in the consciousness-only model where all there is is consciousness, and we are like, we might uh, envision this as we are like an eddy in a stream. So if the stream is everything, you know, the stream is consciousness, we are a temp temporary modulation of consciousness, a temporary little eddy that forms the energy that's in the stream, gives rise to this little eddy, a little whirling, you know, uh, part of the stream that cannot be taken out of the stream. It's not separate from the stream. It really is just the stream. But that eddy apparently appears and then gives its energy back to the stream and uh, uh, seems to disappear. But really, it never appeared. It never disappeared. It was always just the stream. And that's the worldview that I embrace. And in that worldview, the consciousness-only model, there is no separate self. And so, you know, you asked about the fear of death. The fear of death really arises from this feeling of separation from the materialist model where we were apparently born, live and die. We appear, we disappear. And I think that this deserves some real inquiry um, so that we can really get in touch with what, what is our true experience. And if we go to our experience, I think that the consciousness only model makes a lot more sense. Oh, I agree. Uh, the way I think of it is that you, you've heard of the eye in the pyramid, right? You know, the Illuminati with the, you know, the eye on top of the pyramid. Well, I say it's the other way around. The pyramid is in the eye, you know, the eye, eye being consciousness, and the pyramid being material. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. I love that. No, well said. Um, the other question. Oh, and before that, yeah negative bias uh why do we have that greg is it just an evolutionary thing because our brains haven't changed and not too long ago we would spend you know 16 hours a day in a state of stress and negativity because saber-toothed tigers making fire you know we kind of had to be under a lot of stress is that why or what what is negative bias 
Well, again, you know, we all have this negativity bias. Um, and we all have a distraction with the past and future. We overthink the past and future. And when you combine those two things, as I said, you get a lot of uh, fear and anxiety and also low self-esteem, regret, shame, uh, depression. Why are our brains wired that way? I don't, you know, it, it's not my area of expertise, but I have my own thoughts. And you mentioned the, the uh, saber-toothed tiger. Um, I often actually mention that like 50,000 years ago or 80,000 years ago, you can imagine early homo sapiens in a cave yeah. with their family trying to keep the fire going and wary that there might be a saber-toothed tiger lurking outside the mouth of the cave. And so this wariness, this constant projection into the future with this negativity, what's the worst thing that could happen, may have been adaptive at that time. So that those individuals that were particularly wary may have prevented some disasters. You know, in other words, if there was a saber-toothed tiger and they did keep the fire going, maybe they could have warded off that saber-toothed tiger with a burning, you know, a stick or what have you, um, or simply avoiding catastrophe. And so this, the genes that code for this wariness, this negativity, this obsession with what's the worst thing that might happen, may have actually allowed them to have more offspring. And so those genes that code for those properties of brain function may have propagated in the population. And, and you know, fast forward to 50 or 80,000 years later, here we are. Those brain functions are no longer adaptive most of the time. We're not, most of us, constantly being threatened by adversity in our environment, right? Most of us are in a pretty safe place and it's no longer adaptive to have this negativity bias, to have this distraction with the future and in many of us, the past as well. So happiness is in the present moment. If we think of all the times when we've been really happy, whether it's having an incredible orgasm with a partner that we love, you know, we are present. In fact, you know, there's a, a French term for that, which translates to the little death, le petit yeah. mort. And it's because we disappear in that moment. We're, we're totally present and we're not thinking per se. We're not thinking of anything negative or the past or the future. Or we're walking through a forest and we're appreciating the soft cushion of pine needles on the forest floor. And we're we're breathing that slightly oxygen enriched air with that wonderful scent that we have in the forest. And we're looking up at the canopy of leaves above where the sunlight is filtering through magically. And we are not thinking about something we're ashamed that we said or did yesterday or the list of things we need to do when we get home. We are right there in that moment and we're blissed out. And so happiness lives in the present. So it is maladaptive to be overthinking the past and future. And by doing so, we spend too little time in the present moment. And again, the good news is that we are capable of rewiring our brains. We have this magical quality called neuroplasticity. So we need to first identify the problem. I think that's what we said in the beginning of the show. If you're gonna fix something, you first need to identify what the problem is. You need to make a diagnosis before you can write the prescription for the appropriate treatment. So you need to identify the problem. And the problem is 
we have a negativity bias and we're distracted by thoughts of the past and future and we don't spend enough time enjoying the present moment, the only real experience that we ever have. So once we recognize that, we can develop the purposefulness or intention of rewiring our brains, baby steps, daily practice, back to the gain practice, in my case. And, you know, the good news is that we can, we can be happier. In your book, you, you also talk a lot about happiness, but you also mentioned eudaimonic happiness. That's a cool title, but what exactly is that, Greg? Well, you know, there's, you could say there's two kinds of happiness. There's what we call hedonic happiness. So hedonism, you know, it gets kind of a bad rap, right? I mean, people have a negative connotation with the word hedonism, but hedonism or hedonic happiness is the fleeting elation that comes with, you know, a vacation, like a walk on the beach or a new car or a child graduating from college or you know a good meal so i'm saying that these are not bad things i mean it's important to enjoy those moments in life that represent what we might call hedonic happiness i think hedonism is connotes the excessive dwelling on these momentary fleeting happiness um and and failing to recognize the other kind of happiness which is eudaimonic happiness and eudaimonic happiness is the enduring happiness that comes from serving others it comes from growing and being in community and serving so those are that that's a type of happiness that doesn't just come and go right so when you're truly serving when you live a life of serving you are you find a sort of contentedness that endures and so that's that's what eudaimonic happiness is. I, I think they're both important. I think we should savor and enjoy those wonderful moments in life, even though they're only very, you know, bring very temporary happiness. But at the same time, I think we need to embrace the more enduring kind of happiness that comes from really losing the sense of separation, losing that sense of being a separate self that we enjoy through serving others through being in community and through growing and i think those are you know as all of us are let's say certainly in the second halves of our lives i think you know we need to focus on those three elements on personal growth on serving and on being in community if we're doing those things we'll be happy so you know i'm retiring from my medical practice and i have plenty of other things going on but it's an adjustment. You know, I'm, I'm going to miss the teaching of those brilliant medical students, residents and fellows we have at Stanford, taking care of those wonderful infants and children and their amazing families and working with the team of people at Packard Hospital at Stanford. I'm gonna miss those things. And so it's an adjustment. So I need to be focused on how am I gonna to continue to grow, to be in community and to serve as I sort of transition into the next phase. And, and, you know, again, the good news is that, that we can do it. There's eudaimonic happiness that is always available. And, uh, you know, there's always wonderful things on which to focus. That's really well said. Yes. For the audience, uh, 
Gain Without Pain not only talks about the scientific methods of how powerful our minds are and how they can heal. And of course, this is no longer woo-woo. Mention uh, Gabor Mate, everything. This is all scientific, but also uh, the power of altruism about giving. How what makes us human, fully human, is that we have empathy, that we help others, that we need each other. We don't have claws or feathers or like other animals. What makes us human is that we back each other up, the weak, the old, the strong, and we move forward. So it's uh, very important, and, and I love it that you have it in that book, uh, Greg. Um, well, as we get to the end, Vance, do you have any uh, last questions? Yeah, um, I find that you know when the negative thoughts come up, and I got plenty, especially in the morning, and, and when I first wake up, when I'm not fully conscious, um, I've learned to catch myself and, and actually take a step back and hear them. I'm not sure how I did it, but uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, with that technique. And do you have any suggestions for people on how to develop that? Well, I love that you brought that up, Vance, actually. I mean, many of us have that, um, you know, that bit of depression that sort of, you know, underscore the negativity when we're not fully awake, you know. And again, as I said, like there, there are data that show when we wake up in the morning, we tend to focus on the negative. Um, you know, that right. ache, the pain that you have when you're thinking about getting out of bed and then you focus on that and, and that sort of makes it worse, in fact, and then you focus on it more. Um, I love that. I love what you said, especially about not only acknowledging that you have these negative sensations, thoughts and experience during your, the awakening process, but that you allow it, that you don't just push it away because, you know, there's a there's a formula in the book suffering equals pain times resistance. So the pain is there, your negative thoughts are there, that bit of depression you might have in the early morning hour um, or early morning moments, it's what you do with it. So the pain is there, if you resist it, if you push it away, if you try not to think about it, your resistance is increasing and your suffering is increasing. Suffering equals pain times resistance. And so what you said was that you allow it, you sort of, perhaps take a breath and just allow that negative sensation rather than resisting it. And, and when you do that, you're actually diminishing the suffering that's associated with that painful thought or experience. And so I love that. So yes, I would just, again, allow, get out of bed, open the blinds, do your morning hygiene, and then sit and focus on the breath and transition from gratitude, acceptance, intention to non-judgment and back to the breath. And you can do that in three minutes. And I think that's the best way of, I think, coping with this negativity and, and turning things around and beginning to rewire your brain toward the more positive and present. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, well said. It will make a world of a difference. That's part of my routine, but I'm going to adopt some some of the gain techniques. I do it all, you know, I meditate, uh, gratitude, all that, but this will definitely help. So Greg, where I will have this, of course, on the show notes, uh, when it, this interview comes out on video and audio and all podcast providers, YouTube, but tell people where they should go to find out more about you and get your book. Well, the book is on Amazon and elsewhere, but, um, your, your listeners can go to greghammermd.com. G-R-E-G-H-A-M-M-E-R-M-D dot com. 
and there are lots of media and and important information there i think and also a link to the book wonderful we'll check it out again we will have this on the show notes uh you will definitely find a lot of value and insights and some life-changing exercises from uh from gain without pain but uh we are at the end vance dr moondog thank you very much for keeping us company <laughs> very good uh dr miguel uh, uh greg it's been a uh the beacon of light i'm sure the viewers will get a lot out of this, as I have. Well, I've really enjoyed being with both of you. It's been a wonderful experience. Pleasure is all ours, and thank you very much for everything. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.